In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to Saha, Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great show for you today. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, comment, and share this video if you like it. My guest today is Raksha Vasudevan, who is an economist, writer, and former aid worker. Her essays and reporting have appeared in the New York Times, Vice, Guanica, and, and, other, and other online journals. She lives in Colorado. Welcome to the show, Raksha. Hi, Ruth. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Nice. Good to be here as well. And I've never asked you about your aid work. And so actually, that's probably one of the questions I'm going to ask, you know, to kick us off today's conversation. And... Um, just tell me about, about your aid work, where you worked, what you were involved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <clears throat> I did my graduate studies in, um, uh, in development studies. Um, and actually prior to that, I had, done, um, I had done an internship in Bangladesh for a few months working in microfinance. So that's um, really when I started to feel like, okay, this is the right career for me. Um, and I had a great experience in Bangladesh. Um, and so following that, I, I, um, I got a master's in development studies. And after that, I, my first real job in aid was in Mali in West Africa. Um, and there I was working in, um, the type of humanitarian aid that I know you're very familiar with. Um, I was working in, um, we were working in um, IDP camps, camps of internally displaced people, and I was um, uh, helping to manage a program that did um, sort of it was it was sort of public health related, but really focused on explosive remnants of war. At the time, um, Molly had just gone through um, and was still going through actually. Um, uh, I don't I don't know what they call it now, but at the time we called it a civil war. Um, and, uh, I think now it's maybe more known as a, as a rebel uprising. Um, but anyway, um, because of this conflict, there were a lot of unexploded bombs and, um, um, and missiles that could still detonate and kill people, but they often just look like trash. So, um, you know, kids especially would play near them. So, I was working on a program to support um, sort of this public health campaign to raise awareness, especially among IDPs on on what um, these things were and how to avoid them. And if you do come into contact, how do you sort of get yourself away safely? Um, And I did that for a year, but um, I was uh, after the year, um, I was really also more interested in um, the development space, humanitarian work, as you know, is pretty, pretty intensive. Um, and so I wanted to go into more long term development. Um, so I found a job in Uganda that was um, trying to um, sort of support markets for um, mostly for agricultural people, like sort of uh, help farmers um, get their goods to market more efficiently and also help businesses and industries, um, you know, deal with farmers um, in a way that was respectful, but also, um, but also more efficient than what they were doing currently. So I did that in Uganda for two years, and then I moved to Colorado to work for a consulting firm, actually, that was still very much in the same space of of um like market support programming um but we worked with a lot of different it was a consulting firm we worked with a lot of different clients um 
I did that for two years and then um, I'm still in Colorado and I'm, I am an independent consultant now. So I, I'm still doing that same sort of market support programming. And now I've moved a lot more into evaluating those types of programs. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know I'm from Uganda, so <laughs> that's a exactly. good connection there. Yeah. And I read one of your stories uh, you, you kind of brought uh, about your experiences. But then as I was preparing for this interview, I did read your essay um, called Writing About no, sorry, before I get to that, um, I did write an essay you did or an article you did on Uganda, and I was struck by what you wrote, I think, about Ugandans knowing about the prairies in, in, in Canada. Oh, the prairies. Yeah, yeah. 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 The I, pra- <laughs> yeah. Can you just say something? I was just really taken aback by that and actually the explanation for it as well. Can you just say something about that? Yeah, it was one of the things that really struck me when I first moved there is, you know, people would ask <laughs> where I was from. And I, I would say I was born in India and, um, you know, I grew up in Canada and, um, you know, in Mali and even in Bangladesh to a certain extent. And um, that was usually enough. But Ugandans were really curious um, and they wanted to know like exactly where in Canada. When I told them Calgary or Alberta, which is where I grew up, they they would be like, oh, the prairies. Yeah, you grow like wheat and, and you have cattle there. And I was really struck by, you know, struck by that and also you know, to be frank, like embarrassed because I knew I had known so little about Uganda before I moved there. Um, but uh, people seem to know so much about where specifically I was from. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I eventually realized that was because of the sort of colonial curriculum that was still in place in a lot of Ugandan schools. Um, that people um, were still learning about um, like the the prairies as sort of this model for agriculture um, when in reality it's I'm sh- it's very different from Ugandan agriculture like even the crops and everything are very different but yeah I was really struck by that and I think it um, I think it sort of opened my eyes to like the influence of North America in so many places um, and how little we know about like the rest of the world um, here in North America. Now, I was, I was just struck by the anecdote and uh, I was also, of course, uh, as I was reading it, thinking about what I learned in primary school mm-hmm. and it's true. Yeah, <laughs> We were taught all of these things that sometimes I wonder why, uh, but then again, you know, I guess that also explains why you're, sharing about the legacy of uh, of colonialism and the institutions that have stayed behind. The other essay I wrote that um, I just wanted to ask you, and I s- maybe I see if it's shaped your own writing in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, the essay by Banyavanga, why Naina, you know, yeah. I'm a huge, huge, you know, uh, admirer of, of his work. Mm-hmm. You know, sadly, he passed away. Yeah. But of course, he did a lot of work on on how to talk about Africa generally. And I know in your essay, his work had profound impact on you. And I wanted to see, has it shaped your own writing that you're doing today? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I I think about his work uh, a lot. not just because it was so innovative and and brave at at the time, um, but also in how he pushed back against the sort of colonial perceptions of Africa. And um, and, I mean, it's something uh, that I'm very aware of and thinking about all the time in in my work, in my writing um, is, okay, how can I, if I do choose to write about any of my experiences, not just in Africa, but, you know, even in, in the West, um, how can I take into account, um, like my own position and my own privileges? Um, and also like the, the, um, maybe marginalizations that I've, um, that I've experienced, you know, I like, 
I think, um, you know, it's, it's never one or the other, um, for women of color. Um, especially if you do like me have a Western passport and, and, you know, all the privilege that comes with that. So, yeah, I'm really, I'm really conscious of that. And, um, and I think a lot of my nonfiction writing now is, is focused on interrogating sort of those axes of race, nationality, um, you know, the, the aid industry. Um, and, but also, you know, I think about like reading his work is just like, you go on a journey, you know, it's, it's fun. Like, even for me, when I, when I first encountered his work, it was a little bit, um, I don't know exactly what the right word is, but it was a little bit, um, you know, like embarrassing to see myself reflected in the images of the white aid workers that he portrays. Um, but it's still, he really takes you on a journey. Um, and so that's something I'm always thinking about in my work as well is, um, how can I take readers on a journey? How can I decolonize my own approach to writing? And I, I think that's something I'll be, I'll be working on for the rest of my, rest of my life. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's why I wanted to ask you about him, because to me, I've read uh, his work. Of course, I've read his satirical essay that really, yeah. you know, <laughs> went so wild. Yeah. But it was very helpful in many ways. In um, Myself, I'm from Uganda, but you can see how easily the stereotypes that you read, you could even end up in your, you know, in my own work, I could easily end up falling in that trap. Yeah. Um, but of course, realizing there's another way to actually tell stories that represent characters um, th with their full dignity, particularly when it comes to, I guess, nonfiction, uh, nonfiction work. So also, and you've already said it a little because uh, you've already mentioned it, but your work is really, um, the writing is suddenly on a lot of social justice issues. You've you know, talked about racism, decolonizing aid, immigration. Even here, I mean, I saw a couple of your essays on this this couple that was affected by the fires, I think, last year or the year before. And um, what draws you or what motivates you to write about these social justice issues? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I like I, I think it's a maybe a cliche at this point, but I think all um, like the personal is political and all writing is, is political. Um, and I think with, as a nonfiction writer, you know, certainly that's maybe more explicit than it might be with, with fiction. Um, but I think, you know, I, like, I think my experiences in aid work, especially, and also being born in India, I was, I was just really aware of, my privileges from a very early age. Um, you know, I grew up middle class in India. Um, and I, you know, you see very clearly that's not necessarily, you know, especially at the time when I was born in the eighties, like, um, you know, it was very like the class sort of stratifications were very clear and maybe more apparent than they are now if you travel to India. So I think I was really aware of my privileges from an early age. But then when we immigrated to Canada when I was 10, um, I it it is incredible how quickly we switched from uh, you know being like this privileged upper caste family to to being, you know, Indian immigrants um who weren't necessarily treated very well or very respectfully by like a majority white population. And then I think also um you know, when I was living in Africa, I kind of went back to being a privileged Westerner in ways I didn't expect. So I think this question of identity is really, you know, fascinating and compelling to me. But of course, you can't detach identity from all the history that surrounds it. Right. And you can't um, or at least for me, I don't feel like I can claim um, either privilege or marginalization without also looking at like the society around me and how um, like I'm shaped by that. And also, um, you know, how I influence the life of others. So I, I think all my writing is pretty personal in a way and like kind of selfish in some ways too. Um, but I do, um, 
I do try and bring in like as much context um, and as much of others' views as I as I can. Yeah, I hope that answers. Yeah, no, and thank you. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, I, I was, you know, and I'm actually glad we are going. We are talking, so I can ask you all these questions <laughs> that I hope. Uh, <laughs> other people will also find uh will enjoy mm-hmm. and um because i know and there's something else you wrote uh, about being courageous in in your work especially when you're writing about social justice issue and that is something personally i'm always thinking about as well because in in the social justice space it takes a lot of courage uh to say you know to speak truth to power or to write something that is really going against uh, what perhaps the majority are thinking at that time. The other essay, you know, I was thinking, I was wanting to talk to you about also because it relates to the book we are going to talk about um, is your essay and your 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 research as well. So your essay, what Mani Ratnam's films meant to me, and the women of the Sri Lankan uh, civil war, and in your you know your own research, your thesis on women in Sri Lanka who had survived the country's 30-year civil war. Um, and I think the essay was also looking at yeah. your, your research when you were doing it. So why is this topic of interest to you? Yeah, um, I mean, again, for very personal reasons, um, I think, because, um, so I was born in in Chennai, which is in the very south of India, and um, I'm Tamil, um, and Tamil from India. Um, And so I grew up kind of hearing about the Sri Lankan war. Um, Even after we moved to Canada, it was always a topic of conversation in my house, um, because the civil war was, um, was against sort of the Tamil group in the country and the majority Sinhalese in, in Sri Lanka. So I think it was something that many Tamils, even in India, um, you know, everyone had strong feelings about it and, and so did my parents. So it was something that I um, kind of grew up knowing about for a long time. Um, uh, and then I, uh, and then when I was in, in graduate school, um, I, you know, here was an opportunity to kind of go back and and revisit the issue that I um, that I'd grown up hearing about, um, and it was, you know, it, it did feel in in many ways like much more personal and intimate to me um, doing this research um, when I went to Sri Lanka and I I spent a lot of time in the north, which was where. Um, you know, the final stages of the 30 year civil war took place. Um, and it was still very, you could very much see the effects of that. Um, and it did feel very personal and intimate to me because, um, you know, I was speaking to women who looked like they could belong to my family. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, I was speaking and speaking in Tamil with my bad Tamil. <laughs> um, but yeah, doing research in your mother tongue is really very different than any other kind of research I've done. Um, and, you know, I was, I was, um, I was really intrigued in, you know, how does someone carry on after not just a war, but, um, you know, a devastating war that dragged on for 30 years um, and that completely changed like the dynamics and the landscape of of a region you know how does someone how does someone survive that um so it was really like a sort of philosophical question that drew me i think um and you know there were a lot of different answers that that i found and that i think the book that we are going to talk about also addresses in its own way yeah no and i mean also listening to you and and you know, my own reason for doing this, you know, having these conversations and, and the podcast and trying to see if, you know, there's a role for, for fiction really to, number one, raise awareness uh, on this humanitarian crisis, particularly war, um, but also to see if it, if it can motivate some action, you know, if it can really help us uh, actually take some actions to address the, both the, the causes and the consequences of war 
because to me war is I don't even know if if one can survive it it's just something I kept asking myself like if you go through that level of trauma yeah. how do you survive it and, and mm -hmm. how do you go on leaving mm -hmm. and the book we are going to talk about really does a, you know, an, an amazing job in many ways in in um I guess sharing that lived experience oh. of these characters who are really at the and going in in much deep details of that personal experience for them. But we'll talk about that uh, in, in in a few minutes. There were some points that you wrote um, that really I just wanted to to ask you about in the essay itself. And I'll just read. I'll read. I wrote down a few things. So there's somewhere where you wrote. Um, I think you said you were looking for a hero a heroism to erase pain, but this was rendered impossible by the very fact of war. Sacrifice didn't redeem tragedy, only deepened it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very profound quote, but what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think, you know, when I... Um... Like I said, my reasons for doing that research and, and for going to Sri Lanka were um, were very personal and selfish, again, in, in some ways. Um, and I think I was looking for, um, I think I was um, subconsciously looking for um, like heroic figures, especially heroic female figures. Um, you know, the, the Tamil tigers um, were really well known for using um, female soldiers in, in not just in combat, but also they had this really, I don't know, um, I don't know if impressive is the right word, but impressive um, sort of uh, organization and, and structure for, um, for like they were managing the entire region and uh, controlling and managing the entire region at one point, like sort of a semi-state. And so women played a huge role in that. And so I think, um, you know, my own mother, um, who is an amazing woman, um, you know, I think she was uh, like moving to Canada was, it was a hard experience for her. And I think it kind of wore her down in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think when I went to Sri Lanka, um, I was, I was looking for sort of these female heroic figures who could sort of show me, um, you know, not just how do you survive a war, but how do you, how do you carry on? How do you, um, what is right. it like to be, you know, a military hero or, you know, all of these right. things were subconscious, but they came to the surface when I was there. But what I realized when I was there is, you know, there were, a lot of women who could be considered heroic, not just the ones who fought in the war, but also ones who, you know, survived and um, like seeing their whole family killed um, yeah. or disappeared. Um, but, you know, they weren't, it didn't seem to me that um, they w were made stronger by those experiences. You know, I'm using air quotes around stronger. Um, they seemed to, um, you know, they seemed to be still um, very much affected by those, by those tragedies and, um, you know, just trying to find a way to, yeah. to move through them. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know if, I think in our culture, we consider like suffering kind of a heroic trait, but right. I didn't right. find that to be the case. Right, right. Yeah. And um, because I, I, mean, I also like the way you set up this essay as well, you know, um, you talk about these films. I've, I've never watched the films, yeah. but I was very interested. And when you were doing your, your research, I think you mentioned that um, you watched Roger. I don't know if I'm mm -hmm. pronouncing that correctly, Roger. Mm -hmm. I think with uh, sisters, nuns. Yeah. And in the following day, they, they, they introduced you to a group of women mm -hmm. and they mentioned you, you, you know, you had watched uh, this film and you say you saw something joyful on these women's faces. Mm -hmm. what, what did that film open up for you in terms of your conversations with these women? Yeah, it was um it was such an unexpected moment for me because I was watching these films um really as a way to um 
it really is a way to kind of imp uh, improve my Tamil. So I watched a lot before going and when I was there, you know, when I had um, sort of access to a computer and electricity, I was I was watching them at, at night. Um, and I mean, I enjoy I really enjoyed the films, um, but uh, and they were really nostalgic for me. And I think it was the same for for the women that I met right. as well is, um, you know, I recalled maybe a time in their lives when, um, you know, you can get lost in um, watching this very sort of playful um, and uh, yeah, playful and joyful film. Um, and I kind of, um, you know, I, I like the area, especially that I was, that we were in was, you could just see the devastation of the war everywhere around you. And I think, you know, films and TV for the people who had access to them was, was an escape. Um, you know, right. I, I, I think, I don't, I don't know if it was healing, but I think, it, you know, some distraction and some also recollection of what is joyful in life. I mean, I, mean, I think it helped, it helped all of us. And I'm sure you've, also encountered this sort of maybe question from Westerners, especially in the past of like, oh, why do, why do these like poor people who live in a slum, like have a TV when they don't have sufficient housing? And to me, it's like, well, we all need entertainment. We all need stories. Um, and so like, it totally makes sense to me to have a TV and, and, you know, when your conditions aren't livable, because I think it is the the power of storytelling that can help us um, like survive. So I think you know in in terms of our conversations, like it, they were telling me about when um, you know when they first saw the film, like um, you know when they were you know much younger, like what stage of the war it was it happened in, um, and um, yeah, it just felt like having a conversation with with like friends or maybe a film club or something. And um, yeah, I think it was really, at least for me, it, it felt a little bit healing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you said, you know, also the, the power of storytelling to transform and, and to escape as well. Mm -hmm. And I guess this is part of the reason, because when I was reading your essay as well, um, that's what I was like trying to link a little bit when you have film and then of course fiction. Mm -hmm. Also the book we are going to talk about, I'm not sure it allows you to escape. Um, <laughs> no, no. Um, no and, and I think this is a good segue to talk about the story of A Brief Marriage mm -hmm. by Anouk Arupragasam. And before we even talk about the book, I did want to ask you, so what do you think? Should fiction raise awareness and motivation and motivate action to address, you know, the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis? You know, should it? Is that its role? And can it, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not a fiction writer, so I don't feel like I can obviously <laughs> tell fiction writers what they should and shouldn't do. Um, but I... But the question of can it, yeah, I certainly think so. Um, and, you know, I'm an, you mentioned I'm an economist. So I always, you know, I was thinking about this question. And I think the best way um, for me to, to answer it is thinking about it in terms of um, contribution rather than attribution. So, you know, I don't think you can at least in my experience, I haven't been able to draw a direct line between reading a novel about, you know, a humanitarian crisis, let's say in a country and um, maybe direct action beyond making a donation, perhaps, which is still significant, of course. Um, but I think, you know, it, but when you think about it in terms of contribution, in terms of um, you know, sort of like this, this um, ecosystem of factors that can motivate action. Yeah, certainly, I think stories, um, stories have the power to do that. And, and they do in, or they have done that in, in my life. Um, so yeah, I think it's part of, you know, just as like news, you know, the media has a role in, um, 
in telling us what's going on in the world and potentially motivating action. I think fiction can really do that by bringing us into the lived experiences of, of um, people in, um, you know, not just in Western society, you know, having sort of very personal or existential crises, but, you know, people yeah. living through more serious external events, let's say. Yeah. No, and 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 you know, I am um, I believe in it. I believe in its power, and I hope we one day we could get some empiric data. But I also really like what you say about it being um, able to contribute. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I also can't speak, um, you know, about people's uh, writers' work because out of writers, when you ask them, you know, should you know, should your story do that I mean I think many of them will say you know my intention from the story was that so people would enjoy it mm -hmm. that's why I wrote it you know I wrote it so people could enjoy it not necessarily uh for for it to do anything beyond that but there's also writers who whether they're writing nonfiction or fiction mm -hmm. who would like their work to drive change so mm -hmm. it's it's always a sort of interesting uh take on it yeah. But what is this story about? The story of um, a brief marriage. What is it about? Oh, um, <laughs> well, it is about. I mean, I think the title says it all, doesn't it? I know. It's about um, <laughs> uh, two characters um, who are um, in the. I think in the midst of the of the Sri Lankan civil war, um, and yeah. two civilians, I should say, um, Dinesh and Ganja. Um, who um, who meet um, when they're both displaced by the war um, and for, I think, more for reasons of safety than any other, they decide to get married, um, like, very shortly after meeting each other. Um, and, and when I say safety, I mean um, it, the, Tamil, the Tamil Tigers were less likely to forcibly recruit soldiers who were married um so that's why they decide to get married um and the story is about their uh their marriage which is indeed very brief like about a day um maybe a little longer um and uh it takes place in yeah just in that short short time period of a day um so I think that's that's it. I don't know if you would agree with my summary. <laughs> no, I I hundred percent agree, and 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 you're right. The story was uh, set, I think, in the last stages mm -hmm. uh, of the Sri Lankan civil war. By the way, I forgot to mention I did work in Sri Lanka. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I kept meaning to mention that, and mm -hmm. as as also, and I was in the north mm -hmm. for about one year. Yeah. Uh, working with uh, internally displaced uh, people, wow. but even as I was I was reading this book, and thank you for recommending it, I kept thinking, "Oh goodness, how little I knew!" Hmm. Um, and even from my own work, which has really been in the humanitarian aid sector, how little I know hmm. of the impact hmm. um, of this war. And, 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 and their lived experiences. So that was profoundly, you know, really very profound for me reading mm -hmm. this book. I think it's the first book I have read, I have to say. And, you know, the writer did this incredible job of, you know, distilling so much over just following these two characters for mm -hmm. the period of one and a half days. Mm -hmm. But it's the one book I have read that, to me, you can't escape the experience mm, mm -hmm. of being in the war. Yeah. Uh, because I think a lot of, of stories, there's so much that's going on that the war is in the background, mm -hmm. um, which I guess allows a little bit more to escape from it, mm -hmm. as we were talking mm -hmm. earlier. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I agree with, with your summary, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I didn't know that you had worked in, in Sri Lanka. and Yeah, I... I, yeah. I imagine like reading the book yeah. is a different experience when you when you've been there and seen the aftermath as as we both did I guess yeah. and I, you know I, I had the same feeling of you know even though I was doing this research and spent a lot of time there like 
you just never really you can I mean I think that's the power of fiction right it really can put you um into this moment extended moment of of crisis that in ways that maybe no other medium can yeah so I was there just um when they had the peace agreement was holding Mm. um and before the last the final I guess uh resumption of the war that then um I think that that's the period that, that the book is set in yeah um before we talk more about it I wanted to invite you to read an excerpt uh from the book and then maybe we can discuss whatever paragraphs that you read yeah um okay um Okay, let me read this paragraph and a half that I that I loved. Um, For a moment, their eyes met. The world outside the line of their gaze seemed to melt away. And as two humans crossing paths in a lifeless and empty land will stop and with words and gestures attempt to build a narrow bridge between their worlds, they locked their eyes together and tried, if only for a brief and trembling second, to break through the dead skin and dusty air that lay between them. A light breeze brushed past their ears. They were married. Wow. And uh, I'm just going to ask you to just explain what's going on in the yeah, in that paragraph. Yeah, so that's, um, that's in the earlier part of the book. Um, and so this is the moment between Dinesh and, and Ganja when they when they get married. Um, and it was, um, I think it was the suggestion of Ganja's father, um, to sort of arrange this marriage. Um, and this is the moment I think right after they performed this like small ceremony to get married. Um, but yeah, I found, um, this passage in this moment so powerful because, you know, in a way it sort of summarizes the whole, the whole story, like both the the bleakness of you know their environment and and the war going on around them, um, but also like the beauty and almost the audacity, you know, of getting married um, in this type of of setting. Um, and I, I think that's repeatedly what the writer does so well is remind us like we can't escape either the bleakness or the sort of the anguish of living through this. But he also doesn't let us escape like the sort the the beauty and like the poetry that's um, that these characters experience, especially in their relationship with each other. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. And I mean, the writing itself is is very beautiful. I mean, as you said, the language is is very beautiful. It's it's very deliberate, and he really treated his characters with a lot of dignity as well. But also the the, the people, the entire community that mm-hmm. uh, was caught up in in this um, in this war. Yeah. And one of the things that I also felt he did is. And, and you write this in one of your essays, I don't remember which one, about, um, yes, people are caught up in a war, but they still make choices, mm-hmm. um, whether they are good or not choices. And I think to me that that agency that at least they still have, and maybe you can talk to me a little bit about more more about this and also maybe link it to the book. Yeah, I think, I mean, um, you know, the, the whole story, like again, I keep coming back to the title, um, but because he really um, kind of gives the whole story away, you know the marriage is going to be brief for you know one yeah. reason or another. Um, so you know yeah. going in like so- something bad is going to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think you're right. You know he does give the characters a lot of agency in terms of. Um, in terms of, yeah, still deciding to get married, which, you know, at least in this context is still fundamentally an act of hope. You know, they hope they're not going to be, um, you know, either forcibly recruited by, um, by the Tamil Tigers. They hope they're going to escape like the, the missiles and shells that are dropping all around them. Um, and so, 
I think the the way he um the way he sort of um zooms in and really um goes into detail on like pretty much each moment of their lives during this you know day and a half marriage um and you see them making all sorts of choices you know you see them not just getting married um but also um you know you see them um uh like spending the night together in the forest you see them um you like you see him taking a bath too from a well which I found really moving and again like what a what an intimate act that is again hopeful like if you know you're going to die in the next five minutes maybe you wouldn't take a bath so I think in creating this sense of or giving them agency um and this dignity like you mentioned um we are also filled with some hope even in the bleakest of circumstances even when everything else seems preordained and that to me I think was one of the reasons why this book was so striking yeah and to be honest I still (laughs) I still didn't think it was gonna be brief but um (laughs) there you go (laughs) and precisely because of the, the 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 reasons you're giving as well because he you know you see this character Dinesh wanting to be a husband to Ganja and trying to see, okay, how can I at least be appealing to her? Um, you know, and then you talk about him going to, to, to birth and, you know, he cuts his hair and he cuts his nail and, but also how she allows him in a way to actually eventually be very vulnerable and actually be able to cry and then be able to sleep. Um, but one of the things, that, you know, to me, and I think we've touched it, we've touched upon it. I mean, I'm very kind of, I guess, familiar through my own work on, um, you know, of course, the focus on the immediate needs. You want to think about mm-hmm. where is your food coming from, your health needs, the mm-hmm. safety, you know, and the violence. But to be honest, I had never thought about uh, connection um connecting with people speaking to to other people having human contact Mm -hmm. and that's just something that the book also brought out uh in a powerful way for me like in terms of what again what you know what people lose when they are caught up in in these wars yeah I mean I think it's such an interesting moment to talk about this too because we're in a pandemic where we're all deprived of of connect or have been deprived of connection in in many ways and i like i think for me you know books have been such a such an important portal into that connection um you know i guess psychological and mental if not physical um and i think this book in particular um, you know, the characters are very embodied, like very, um, uh, I don't know if, if the, I don't know if they're in tune with their bodies so much as like their bodies are a force that act upon them. Um, and so, you know, like reading it and rereading it, um, you know, I felt the sensations like very viscerally in my body, both like the moments of horror but also like yeah the intimacy and and the connection and like the <clears throat> the fundamental need that we have for um for connection like even for um there's also an argument to be made i think in this book alone that they might have been safer alone each of them right. like right. you know less likely to kind of be spotted um right but you know, sometimes we trade, we trade safety for, for connection and it makes sense. You know, we're, we're animals. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely. But I mean, I mean, the way I guess the author also set the book up, um, because I mean, when you say that, I think, yeah, you know, probably they would have been safer. I don't know, because at some point she goes away and, and we yeah. know what happens. Uh, but also her father, you know, had, had mm-hmm. left. So that also really informs the, the plot and the story itself. Uh, and in terms of, of, of what happened without giving away too more details for mm-hmm. other readers who would love to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm going to slowly try to wrap up, but I actually looked at some of the reviews of the book Mm -hmm. and I just want to read these three and, and, and see if they resonate with you because in terms of the question I'm asking, I felt that these writers actually articulated it so eloquently. So Garth Greenwell, author of What Belongs mm-hmm. to You, said, very seldom in a reading life does a novel alter your sense, not only of literature, but of the world. Mm-hmm. And Merit Tias, author of Love Me Back, said, the books makes from real life fiction to show what real life is. Mm. And and finally, Siam Selvaduri, the author of Funny Boy, and actually I've read mm. this book, um, which is also set in Sri Lanka. He writes, this small story of a brief marriage sends out ripples far beyond its parameters. Mm. It bears witness to the lives and suffering of those thousands who perished in the last days of the Sri Lanka's civil war, Mm-hmm. whose numbers are still uncounted and who lie in unmarked graves. Mm-hmm. When future generations want to understand in human terms what happened, they will read this graceful masterpiece. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially that last review, I think really, really captures it, you know, because it is based in on a, on a reality um, yeah. and it is... Um, you know, I think about it. I first read this book, I think maybe two years ago, and I still think about it all the time and recommend it yeah. to people all yeah. the time. And um, and I think it like it, it really did feel like my sense of self was was altered, too. Bec- and, and I think also a sense of like what. What the bounds of human experience can be. Um, I think it altered my sense of that. Um, and I mean, for me, at least um, in terms of motivating action, like I think it reinforced my commitment to um, not just writing stories that are directly relevant to um, like the West, you know, I'm sure you as a writer, like you face this pressure to write stories that are like set in America and about American characters doing American things um, because that's what people are most easily drawn to. Um, But I think, you know, reading the story, it reminded me like, no, I don't want that to be the center of either my writing or, or my professional life. Like those of us from places outside the West also have a role to play in the western canon um so for me it certainly had an impact yeah to be honest i don't have the pressure to 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 to, to write uh, american characters but part of it is because i couldn't (laughs) yeah that's true true. (laughs) just because you know uh the 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 stories that i think i could probably write well uh are you know a, a kind of like set really in certain settings and, 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 but, but I also know that there's a lot of feedback that comes back in terms of, can you make it palatable for a certain audience? Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, there's a lot of, when people write about violence, you know, writers writing about war, there's always this kind, can you make it a bit, you know, less, less, less violent, less violent. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you know how do you yeah. make violence less violent right yeah I mean um, I'm sure he like I think he just you know obviously wrote the book he didn't like pitch it I, and I don't think yeah. he has an MFA so you know I don't I don't I'm guessing he didn't workshop it in any academic yeah. setting because yeah. I think if you just had to summarize the book probably no Western publisher yeah. or major publisher yeah. would be like, yes, that's the book we yeah. want to buy. But he did it, you know, he did it with such um, dignity or grace, but without compromising like the violent reality of war yeah. that, you know, yeah, it's, it's utterly compelling. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And that's why, you know, it's one of the books I would definitely recommend uh, for anyone who really wanted to at least understand a lived experience Mm. um of what it is like to be especially caught up in a cycle of 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 fighting because Mm -hmm. it's such a short span 
but yeah. it, it covers so much um mm. but definitely he did really an amazing job Raksha, this is really um, going to be my last question for you. So I'm curious to know if, you know, someone who will listen to to, to, to this uh, conversation, if there was any single action they could do that would help to um, address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis, what mm. would that be for you? Oh, single action. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think a first action, and maybe not the only one, but I think a first action is to is to learn about it. You know, whether right. that's through reading the news or reading through, or reading fiction, um, because I think you know, it's problematic to say like, oh, this is the solution to, you know, the war in Syria without knowing anything right. about the war in Syria, right. for example. So I think a single action would be to learn about it and then, you know, decide for yourself because I do right. think it's contingent right. on us as individuals also to learn about the world around us. Um, right. To learn about not just the crisis, but also how, like, your society, whether that's America or Uganda, like, may have played a role in that. Um, and then to figure out what the next action is. Yeah. yeah. That is it, unless you have any questions for me. No, just thank you. What a great conversation. And um, thanks for the opportunity to talk about, talk about so many things that I'm passionate about. No, thank you. And if anyone would like to learn about your work, where can they find you? Oh, they can find me. I'm on Twitter um, and you can find me on my website, which is just my first name, last name.com. Um, my email address is also on there if anyone wants to get in touch. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Raksha. If you would like to get more information about Saha Stories and Humanitarian Action, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, like, share and comment. If you'd like, you can also, if you, you can also find, and if you would like, more information about uh, Saha and Humanitarian Action, please follow me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana, R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A, and on, on my website, www.ruthmukwana.com. I would like to thank my co-producer Jamal Swift and the Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you. Goodbye.